My name's Tim, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, I get the privilege of being with you for the next four weeks. Woo! All right, four weeks, yeah. James is excited. <laughs> so is Allie, apparently. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I get the privilege of being with you. It's always fun to come and share with you guys. Um, like, it's, you know, it's fun. It'll be really fun in 30 minutes from now when I'm done, but it's, it is fun. Uh, I, last night at, you know, 11 o'clock, not so much fun, but we're good now, right? James can relate, right? <laughs> so uh, this morning we are kicking off a four-week series called uh, Finding Jesus, and uh, I thought I'd just give it that title just to get us in a little bit of our VBC ocean commotion type theme, uh, get us ready to go into the summer. Uh, evidently, Finding Nemo sequel, Finding Dory, is coming out next week. Who's excited? Yeah? All right, but uh, that, was, that was not really planned when I, when I did it. But anyways, uh, we're kicking off a four-week uh, series and finding, finding Jesus. And so, uh, but to uh, kick it off, to kind of explain what we're going to be talking about for four weeks, I got a little bit of a, of a joke, and to, you're going to have to give me some grace. Stephanie, Stephanie is already grinning at the back because she knows how bad this joke is going to bomb, all right? So... Uh, but uh, two pilots are bringing a plane in to land, uh, and uh, the pilots uh, hit the runway, and they realize that they don't have enough room uh, to bring it to a stop, so they slam on the brakes, and they go crashing through the lights, uh, and finally the plane comes to a stop, and uh, one pilot turns to the other pilot and says, uh, man, that runway was short, eh? And uh, the other one, the other pilot turns back and said, yeah, but it was really wide, I'll let that one sink in, all right? You'll get that one on the way home. So, uh, but uh, we're, talking about, uh, we're talking about the journey this morning. That's why I opened with that one. Uh, we're talking about the journey this morning. Have you ever heard this phrase? It's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Have you ever, yeah? Some of you have maybe taken family vacations where, uh, you know, the, the journey tends to influence what your enjoyment of the destination is. You know what I mean? Uh, we were, uh, went with a trip with our whole family right after Steph and I got married. Uh, we didn't have any kids yet. We went down to, uh, to Florida, to Miami, and uh, on, when we were supposed to be flying out, there was a big uh, snowstorm that came through Atlanta and uh, grounded all the, I mean, like, big snowstorm for Atlanta is like they had frost on the wings, all right? Like they had no de-icer at the airport. Anyways, so all, all the flights were, that were supposed to go through Atlanta were, were canceled. So we got uh, pushed. Uh, that was on a Sunday, and we got pushed to the Monday. And then uh, we found out that that same uh, storm then kept going up the coast and went through JFK, and that was where our second flight, they had rebooked us to go through JFK, and so that one was canceled as well. Uh, and so we didn't end up getting out of Miami until Wednesday. I mean, I, it's a really tough life, I know, having to stay an extra four days in Miami. But uh, what made it a little more difficult is that it was me, my wife, my sister, and both parents crammed into one hotel room. All right? Yeah. And you know, like, like I love my family, but I'll tell you, like 100 square feet is just not enough room to be spending four days with people. Uh, and so uh, we, we crammed in this one. And finally on Wednesday, we were able to get home. And the flight they sent us on was we went from Miami to Atlanta, from Atlanta to Detroit, from Detroit 
to Buffalo, and then we got our car at Buffalo and drove home. I'll tell you, that flight from Detroit to Buffalo, it's like a 45-minute flight. Like, the stewardess was, like, handed out snacks to the first three rows, and then uh, we were in our descent. You know what I mean? Like, really, it was a great flight. But, uh, you know what I'm saying? The journey and the destination, it's not always about the destination. The journey sometimes affects it. Or to put it another way, I think every person under 30 could probably finish this sentence, uh, especially if you're, you know, if you're in high school right now, uh, tracking with me, every person, or so you're sitting in math class and your teacher gives you the test. And what does the teacher say? Make sure you show your work. Yeah. Make sure you show your work. Why? What is up with that? If I can guess the right answer, I think I should get credit for that. But, uh, I was going to razz John a little bit about that, but he's, he's not here. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, that's what we're talking about for the next four weeks. We're not talking about the what of the destination or the what of the answer. We're talking about the how we get there and the why we, why we believe that, why we got there. Um, the why we believe what we leave, why we believe that and how we got to that conclusion. Uh, we're talking about the journey to the destination. Um, and so if you are like me in high school uh, math class, or were in high school math class, you may be asking yourself, what does it matter, Tim? What does it matter about the journey as long as I have the answer? What does it matter how we get to the right answers as long as we know what the right answers are? Uh, and the truth is, uh, for Many of us, including myself, uh, that are working with family ministries in particular, one of my roles here is working with uh, our youth, uh, but one of the things that we will inherently know if you talk to most youth pastors is that we do a good job, we do a really good job at teaching our kids and our youth and our young adults the what. We do a pretty good job at teaching them the answer, the things they should know, the things they need to know. You know, like we do an amazing job at teaching them what the fruit of the Spirit are. You know, getting them to memorize what the fruit of the Spirit are. Teaching them songs to learn what the fruit of the Spirit are. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Anybody remember that kid's time? Come on. Uh, Right? We do a good job at teaching them what to do or what not to do. Teaching them uh, not to sleep with each other until they're married. Not to go get drunk. We teach them to love your neighbor and to go to church. We teach them about the who Jesus is, that he's our king, he's our savior, that he's uh, our redeemer, that he loves us, and that we are members of his family. But we don't do a great job of teaching them why. Why do we believe that? And how did we come to that understanding? How do we know these things to be true? And what I have seen in my own experience and countless surveys and studies have showed us is that we have an epidemic in our family ministries, in our, in our kids and in our youth and in our young adults, where we are losing countless kids uh, and when they enter adulthood because they don't have ownership of their own faith. They can't answer why I believe that. They know what the right answer is because their youth pastor or their Sunday school teacher or their pastor has told it to them, but they don't intrinsically know it for themselves. They don't own it for themselves. And I have listened to people 
sitting down with them, tell me, you know, the what we believe. But are, they have walked away because they really have no idea why they believe that. They haven't figured out what led us to that conclusion. I have listened to people give me beliefs about who God is and what God is like and what the world and people are like and what behaviors we should have as Christians. And they either don't know why they believe that or the, how they came to that conclusion, uh, how they came to that belief just doesn't hold up. And so in this particular instance, when we're going through what we believe and the truth of the situation, there is a need to know how we journeyed to that answer and why we believe what we believe. See, because we live, this is not contained just to family ministries, we live in a world that is looking for truth. They are looking for it every way. They're looking for what true in their own life. In fact, we live in a world where many Christians, in fact, believe such truths as God helps those who help themselves, or God wants you to be happy, or doubting is dangerous, or this too will pass, or there will always be poor people among you. Those are, those are uh, actual examples taken from a Gallup poll these are, these are real statements that Christians believe in. And one of the all-time duds is it's just a matter of faith. Or to phrase another way, you just have to believe it. Right? That, 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 that's, that belief right there, or that statement right there, totally encapsulated. You know, you can't prove it. You just have to believe it. It's not about how I got there. It's just about repeating the right answer. It's the what I believe, not the why I believe or how I got to that belief. And we live in a world that is constantly looking for proof. You know, they're, they're saying, I want to believe something. I want to believe something. But we live in a culture, unprecedented, you know, skeptical culture. Skeptical. We want to, we want proof, you know? We live in a culture that is distrusting, filled with fear and doubt and worry. And they're looking for belief, but it's not just belief in the rote knowledge sense, in the here, here's the answer. They're looking for belief that they can know to be true. Belief that they can experience Belief that they can have a sense of ownership. That they can see that it's true. And so, this series really is about saying, it's not just about what we believe, but it's the fact that there is proof to our faith. There is proof to the Christian faith. There is an ownership that we take of our faith that is an experiential ownership. That we have the ability to look at it and see the blessings of it. That we have the ability to look at it and realize why we believe that. It's not just knowledge passed on. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. And uh, so I want you to open your Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 
proof, the first way that we can know truth, the first way that we can know something, and it probably is not going to come as a big surprise to you, the answer is the Bible, (laughs) right? We can know truth based on the Bible. And so we're going to talk a little bit this morning about how, though, we unpack truth from the Bible. And so I want you to open your uh, Bible to John 5.39. And so what we will find is that this question of proof, this issue of skepticism is not new. That it has been around for a long time. And in fact, there were people who were asking that same question to Jesus. And that's where we are here. To set the scene for you, the beginning of John 5, uh, it's the Sabbath day. And Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And the man gets up and takes up his mat. And the, the teachers of the law, the, the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, they come to Jesus and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who do you think you are that you can work on the Sabbath? Who do you think you are? You can't do that. In fact, we have a very nice, neat prescription for what you can do on the Sabbath and what you can't do on the Sabbath and how you should keep the Sabbath. And for some of us, we read this and we're like, what is the big deal? Like, why are they so fixated on keeping the Sabbath? And James alluded to this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the Pharisees. And that the Pharisees started off on a really good, solid trajectory. The Pharisees were given the Old Testament, were given the laws and the prophets and the Psalms, and their primary concern was, how do we keep ourselves holy? In this world of fallen nature, in this world where the Romans have come in and taken over our land, how do we stay holy? How do we stay on track? And the answer was, well, let's read the scripture and let's come up with the set of rules. And so if you follow these rules, you can know for sure that you are holy. What governed theirs was it, what governed their actions was this ultimate desire to stay holy. And that is a good thing. Is anybody, if I said it's a good thing to stay holy, would anybody disagree with me? Yeah, yeah. Like it's a good thing to be holy, right? It's a good thing to be like God, to be like Jesus. But the problem was, is that they're missing the point. And that's where we're going to pick it up, where Jesus is responding to them. And it's in the middle of a little bit of a response. And we're just going to concentrate on one verse this morning. How easy is that? All right. Does that sound good? John 5, verse 39. And it says this. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. See, the Jewish leaders and and a broad paintbrush, the Jews at that time, believed that they had special standing with God because two things. They had his word given to them and they had his presence in the temple. Right? And what we'll read through the whole Old Testament is the constant, uh, they put their faith in that presence, right? Nobody can overcome us. Why? Because we have the God Almighty in the Holy of Holies. He's with us. He's on our side. 
And not only do we have him in the Holy of Holies, his presence, he has given us his word. He has given us the scriptures. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and what uh, they, they came to believe, and in fact, as you go into the later, the second temple period, uh, this is going to be, I hope I don't lose you, but we know that, right, the is, God gave the Israelites, he said, I know that I've been with you, but you've disobeyed, so I'm going to allow you, I'm going to allow the Babylonians to come in and scatter you, and you're going to be scattered, uh, and they all go out, and Solomon's temple is ripped down and destroyed, right? And uh, eventually, God brings them back from exile, and they create a second temple, which is, they call this period the second temple period, which is when Jesus is uh, on the scene. Uh, obviously later than when they built it, but it's the second temple is still around when Jesus is in. But what we find is that there's a bit of a shift, uh, especially in their theology and in the weight they put on the temple, especially as they enter that exile period because, well, they don't have a temple, <laughs> right? So they have to kind of grasp what does it mean uh, to be people of the presence and to have God's presence and to be the chosen ones, even though we don't have physical land and we don't have a temple and we don't have his presence with us. And so they have to kind of figure that out. And what they do is you'll see a, you see a shift in the writings of the rabbis from an emphasis on the temple and the presence of God to the word of God, the scripture that they have with them. And they say, and so what Jesus is actually saying is he reads it here. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. Jesus is actually picking up, picking up on a common belief of the time that, that was before him uh, and continued in his time. And it's that God's presence and God's blessing and all the promises that God brought or promise that he will give are contained within the scriptures. And so when we know the scriptures, we know the blessings. And when we dig down and we search the scriptures, we can know who God is and we can know the, uh, we can receive the promises of eternal life that he says. In fact, that, uh, well, sorry, I'm gonna get, I'll get there in a second. But uh, that, that, that word search, uh, it's not just like a light, you know, oh, I can read the scripture. It's, it's actually a, a word that's not that common when in the New Testament. And it has this uh, concept of digging down with care that they might be able to discover uh, what lays in the or what lay in the depth depth below the idea is it's you know it's this not this this mediocre reading but it's this searching this i gotta dig down in the scriptures i gotta figure out what it means i gotta memorize it and i gotta know it and then i will have the life and the promise that the scripture has and they prided themselves on being a nation that heard the voice of God, that knew who God was and had his blessing because they knew the scriptures. And in fact, uh, there's a religious leader, a Jewish religious leader uh, who lived about, a, he was active about a hundred years-ish before Jesus, and his name was Hillel. And uh, Hillel said, made a statement like this that we still have, the more study of the law, the more life. If he has gained, he's talking about, you know, if a person who studies, if he has gained for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. So the belief was, if I can memorize the scripture and I can put it inside me and I can regurgitate it, then I will have life. 
And what you may be picking up on is that there's a subtle shift going on because the life does not come from the scripture. The life does not come from the word of God. The word of God carries the life, but it doesn't come from the, from the word of God. It comes from Jesus, right? He's the source. In fact, this expression, you search for eternal life, um, you should know that, that that term, everlasting life, or eternal life, it's the same term, uh, is used a couple times throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, in particular in Daniel, and uh, as well through some of the other Gospels and into Paul. But uh, in John, it takes on a bit of a different tone. Uh, in Daniel, where that phrase first appears uh, and uh, first comes onto the scene and is used, uh, it means what most of us come to understand eternal life as, which is life beyond death. The idea that you will live forever in eternity. Um, you know, the concept of, of, of heaven and hell, that we have everlasting life. But in John, uh, John actually turns the term around a bit uh, because it's, it's mainly, it, it includes that concept, but the, it's mainly about the quality of life, not the quantity of life. It's mainly about receiving the blessings that come. That eternal life is not about the distant future. Eternal life is also about the now. That there is a flourishing in life that we experience because why? Because there's a connection to, the whole, uh, to, to Jesus. There's a connection to God. The Holy Spirit is alive and active, right? That there is a, a, a flourishing of our life as we come into the kingdom of God. And so in, in John, we should recognize that it's about quality and not quantity, Um, but the scriptures point to me that, but that's a, it's a, you know, it's actually a, quite a strong conjunction. That's the word, right? Conjunction. English teacher. Yeah. Conjunction. All right. Good stuff. It's a strong, it's actually a, and yet it's a, it's a, you know, like, I don't know if Jesus was actually pounding the table, but that's what I'm imagining. And yet he probably wasn't even behind a table, but, uh, you know, it's this concept of, and yet, pay attention. Look at, there's something coming. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop some knowledge on you. Here it goes. Scripture is not the center of the Christian faith. Right? And there's probably something in you, as I say that, you get a little squirmy in your seat, and there's some, you know, you get that itch. What? What? Christian, or that the Scripture is not the center of the Christian faith. What are you talking about, Tim? But the truth is, it's not. Scripture is our, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Scripture is our unshakable partner in the Christian faith, but it is not the central point of the Christian faith. That position belongs to one person, and he says, who is it? The Scriptures point to me, Jesus. Jesus always has to be the center of our faith. It's all about Jesus. See, when Scripture is in its proper place, it actually decentralizes itself as it points toward Jesus. And so as we read the Bible and as we read Scripture, 
we should be coming into a place where we say, this passage, this verse is leading me into more of a relationship with Jesus. And if it's not, read, if it's not leading us into a better relationship with Jesus, if it's not revealing his character, if it's not teaching us about who he is, if it's not drawing us into that relationship, then we need to recognize that we may be possibly, maybe, misreading it. We may have put it up on a pedestal that it wasn't meant to be on. I don't know about you, but uh, this is a long time ago. Because James, this is three years, four years coming up? Four years. Four years coming up. When James started, I don't know how many of you remember, but we started uh, with uh, read through the Bible in 90 days, right? I don't know if, if you were able to follow along. James is apologizing over there. I don't know if you were able to follow along, but we were able to go from Genesis to Revelation in 90 days. And uh, as I'm reading through with, with along on the track, and uh, I'll be the first one to admit I fell off pace. I'm not going to lie. But uh, as I'm reading through it, one of the things that kept confronting me is that this book is not behaving like I think it should. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's some things in there that I don't think should be in there. (laughs) There's some things in there that I'm not sure about. And one of the things that maybe will set off a light bulb in your mind is if the Bible is not behaving the way you think it should, then you're probably misrepresenting what the Bible is. Right? Because it's not the central point of our faith. It's not where we get eternal life. It's not where we you know, come to as this is all what it's all about. It's all about Jesus. It's the conduit to life. It's the way through to the person. Right? And so we need to begin to understand that we need to teach. I say this to our youth all the time. We need to understand the Bible is a letter and not a textbook. A lot of us are reading it like a textbook. There's no entry exam to heaven. Thank goodness, right? We don't get to the the gates and it's like, all right, so I would like you to recite uh, John 3.16 and then tell me what the uh, Beatitudes are and then you can come into heaven. There's no entrance exam, right? It's about whether we are in relationship with Jesus whether we are a part of the family of God. And that is a good thing. Because what it does is it releases us from the law. It releases us from the studying of Scripture in a, for, this, for the sole purpose of behavior modification. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of us are into behavior modification because it's easier, right? Like, if you're a parent or you, you know, like you, you've done that parenting thing, right? You will recognize that it, behavior modification is sometimes the easier route. <laughs> you know what I mean? Go to your room. Why? Just go. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's easier just to follow the direction. But it's harder to actually, you know, get into why do you go this, need to go to your room? What is going to happen to the rest of us? How is this going to affect us? That you're not following the directions. Why am I telling you this? You know what I mean? It's, it's harder. It's a letter and not a textbook. And so, 
the letter should help us get to know who Jesus is. When uh, Steph and I started dating, which was so long ago now, I'm so old. Steph somehow stayed young, but I am so old now. But uh, yeah, Uh, when we started dating, uh, we started dating right before uh, the beginning of summer. And both of us actually ended up going uh, our different ways, uh, not relationally, (laughs) but uh, work-wise. So I went up uh, actually to Camp Mishawa, where some of us may be hopefully going in a couple weeks uh, to work there for the summer. And Steph went to a camp uh, around this area. And uh, then after that, then she went off to school in Toronto for six months, and I was at school here. And so we spent the first uh, six, eight months-ish writing letters. I know that seems like, if you're under 25, that seems like an odd, you know, concept, writing letters. But uh, we wrote letters back and forth, uh, partly because Cam Mishawa is better now, but when I worked there, uh, even if you had not that old, uh, you couldn't get any reception up there. So uh, it, was, it was useless to you. <laughs> so uh, we had to talk on a payphone. I know that's crazy. And we had to write letters back and forth. Uh, and one of the first ones I wrote to her is, she reminded me of this, was, is this butte right here. Uh, in fact, funny story is I, I misaddressed the letter uh, and uh, the uh, post office actually wrote on it. You can see incomplete address, forwarded, forwarded as a courtesy only. Uh, I think they assumed that it was like a parent giving a letter to their six-year-old, <laughs> not <laughs> two young adults who started dating. But uh, <laughs> this, was, this was the letter I sent. And uh, just so you're aware... Uh, you know, you roll your eyes when I tell corny jokes and stuff like that, but Steph totally, don't feel bad for her, because she totally knew what she was getting herself into. Uh, the second letter I ever sent her uh, was an envelope just full, full of sand. That's all it was. Uh, and so she opened, she was working in the kitchen. Uh, actually, no, she, you're, you're, in your, you're in your room, I think at the time you said, and you, you opened the, uh, the letter and just sand poured out of the envelope all over her bed. And uh, she was, you know, very excited about that. Uh, and uh, uh, she was made sure to tell me at the end of the summer that at the end of the summer, she was still sweeping sand out of her bed from that experience. Uh, I just wanted her to, you know, know what it was like when I was spending my days on the beach. So, you know, that's... You knew what you were getting into. Anyways, and she still married me, so that's a good thing. But uh, it would be so odd. Think about that. I know, again, an email or a letter, it would be so odd for me to read the letter just to know what the letter says and to not get to know who Stephanie is. Like the next time I get together, it's like, Stephanie, I memorized on the second page, on the third line, you said that you... Uh, you know, you're going to go to school and start in September. That would be an odd thing for me just to, I'm so excited, I memorized what it said. The reality is she didn't write the letter to me just to give me some information. Stephanie wrote the letter to me to connect, to get to know each other, to share what was going on, to give wisdom, to give, you know, 
correction. She probably wasn't into giving correction to me, but uh, at that point. That comes later, right? That's, but, uh, you know, we don't write letters so that people will memorize them. We write letters so that we can communicate with them. And so the Bible is not this letter written so that we have a record of what happened in the early church. It's not written to us so that we have, so that we can know the plight of the Israelites. The Bible is written to us as a letter so that we know who he is. So that we can connect with him. So that we can uh, relate to him. And so this morning, my encouragement for you is as you go from this place, and as you open the scripture, may you find it full of light because it's coming from a person. It's not coming, it's not just a collection of writings. It's not just a collection of books and stories. It's God's story. It's actually God's disclosure of himself to you. And so let us keep him center. And as we will unwrap and unpack in the coming weeks, that when we have issues that we come up against, and when we have questions and concerns, We don't look to the scripture for behavior modification. We look to the scripture to get to know who Jesus is and how he would act. We get to know, we read the scriptures to get to know what he's like and how he would respond. And that is our goal. The first proof is actually the scripture because it points to him. Evidently, the reason I'm calling it a proof and the reason that Jesus unpacks it, he actually goes through five different proofs of why, of who Jesus is. And it's because in the early Jewish court, you couldn't testify on your own behalf. It was the witnesses. And the witnesses were the ones who were interrogated. And the witnesses were the one who actually uh, showed whether you were truthful or not. And Jesus says, I've got witnesses. And that's what he's laying out in in John 5. God himself, John the Baptist, his teachings and miracles, the scripture and Moses. And so when we read the scripture, we recognize this is about Jesus. And uh, if you want to know more about that idea, more about the concept of Jesus being central We actually have, it's actually part of our ethos as an EMCC church. The great paper called Jesus at the Center. And if you would, uh, if you're interested in reading that, you can, I think, actually find it on our website. If not, you can find it on the EMCC website. And one of our core beliefs here at Trinity and as a larger denomination is that it all points to Jesus. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. It's why we spend so much time on things like hearing God's voice, because it's not just about reading it. It's about knowing him. It's about hearing what he says to us in the scripture. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you pursued us. You loved us so much that you came And you died so that we 
could have open access to the Holy of Holies. That as your presence, your Holy Spirit burst forth from that place and descended on each one of us, that we now have your spirit imprinted upon our spirit. That we have communion with you in a way that no other uh, individual in the Old Testament was able to have. That we have access that we can call upon you. Think about that. The Holy of Holies, God Almighty, dwells within a person like you and a person like me. That we can speak, not into the air, throwing up prayers, hoping they'll land somewhere. That we can say prayers, not over and over and over again, hoping that we can will them somehow into existence. Not trying to empty ourselves to, you know, to come to this place of peace. But we can actually turn to a person, a relationship. Because that's where it all is. And Father, we just pray this week as we go that you would continue to imprint your presence upon us. Continue to imprint who you are through your scriptures upon each and every one of us. In your holy name, amen.